Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hi, and welcome to the MicroBinfi podcast. Today, we are talking about contamination. It's vital in science to have a definitive result, which can often be sidetracked by problems with contamination. Is what you are doing worth the Nobel Prize, or is it contaminated? People get excited when they see interesting results, but they should be asking if it's too good to be true. Taking the cynical approach, we'll talk about best practices and what you should be doing to save yourself months of time. You want to take it away, Andrew? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first thing is when you get some data, you know, what is actually in my sample? And well, Nabil, what do you do to check to see what the hell is in your sample? Uh, depends on the depends on the sample. If I'm dealing with single isolate data, the first thing I'm going to do is run it through uh, Kraken or use MASH to uh, find the closest reference genome and both of those should tell me that this is the species of the isolate that I'm expecting. What, so you don't believe the microbiologist when they say this is really E. coli and it's salmonella? Uh, No. (laughs) Never never assume anything it makes an ass of you and me. And uh, yeah, but yeah, there's a bunch of different tools that basically will give you the classification, things like Midas or uh, there's a bunch of different databases available that you can use that will help you do the assignment all the way down to um, with subspecies level or even you can call the SDs direct, sequence types directly. So what databases do you use? Uh, so there's the GT, GTDB, which is the new kid on the block, I think, for uh, taxon classification. Calamari, which I haven't used too much. Uh, there's the Kraken, Mini Kraken, all different flavors of Kraken. Uh, there's simple MLST, Torsten's MLST tool is quite good. That will also, that does the species assignment as well. Uh, so you can just give it a set of contigs and it'll tell you what the species is. But there's also Ref Masher. And there's also RefSec Masher which is a tool that just takes uh, your reads and then uses MASH to find the closest relative in RefSec. So, and yeah, you really want, if you're working with Salmonella, you expect Salmonella. And often with, for some reason or another, you often get some other bug that creeps into your data just through nobody's fault. It just seems to be a sort of standard error, like one in 100 samples will be some other thing Proteus mirabilis or Citrobacter or some random thing in the lab. So what if you're working in samples which aren't isolates or, you know, major pathogens? Which database is best? It would really depend on the type of sample that you're doing. Uh, I think at the moment the best databases for taxon classification in a recent paper suggested uh, Kraken as, as one of the best ones. Or, or it also suggested another one called Ganon, which I haven't used, but... Kraken was the was the mainstream one that it recommended. 
So I would go for that. But Lee, do you have any comments for complex samples, what you would use? So was the question, like, if you had a metagenomic sample, what would you use? Yes. Yes. Or okay. let's say uh, someone had done a sweep across a plate. It wasn't necessarily a single colony. Well, I, I really like these because it kind of takes the idea that you have a single isolate and your null hypothesis is that you have a single isolate and it can be disproven that if if it shows that you have a metagenomic sample instead, like if you have conflicting taxa. So I really like this approach. And when I when I kind of formalize that hypothesis, I like to go with these different database-driven um, databases like you mentioned. Um, GTTB has been like amazing. And um, I've been working a lot with my custom cal calamari database with a K. Um, and it's, it, I've been building it very slowly, asking the subject matter experts at CDC one by one which genomes they expect to see in a, in a sample or what is a common contaminant. I've been building it slowly. And the genomes are not entirely online yet, but I do have a compiled database for people to try out. So that's money curated, and you're not just taking everything that happens to be uh, publicly available? Right. It's been a very slow, long process. Um, and I have even some restrictions that they have to be completed genomes or as completed as possible so that there are no questionable contigs in the database itself. Um, like um, Steven Salzberg's lab has found all genomes are commonly contaminated, all fragmented genomes are commonly contaminated with certain taxa, and they've shown that, in, at least in a talk I've been to, or maybe they've published it by now. So I try to avoid that problem. And to answer your question um, earlier, I have been trying to test calamari with metagenomic samples, but it's been a slow process also, a slow but steady process. So it's been good for both contamination detection and for metagenomics. Yeah, um, there's a couple of uh, sort of de novo approaches I'd use inherent from the sample itself. You don't necessarily need to use a database to figure out something is wrong. Uh, one of the ones I do is I simply assemble it. Uh, you should get back something that looks like an assembly, a, a draft genome assembly for the species that you're working with. So a salmonella with current alumina would give you roughly 200-ish, maybe less contigs, and you should hopefully get around four and a half megs of sequence. If you see things that are vastly different from that, then something has horribly gone wrong. You mean if you have a 20 meg uh, salmonella genome? Yeah, 20 meg salmonella genome, or it's like in 2000 contigs or, or anything like that. Uh, and then there's other really simple methods like uh, looking at the GC, um, just a GC plot of your sequences. If you've got different species with different GC um, content, they will obviously, you'll, you'll see that difference there if you just plot it. And the same thing applies with things like KMERS or even um, like tetranucleotides or whatever, so codon bias or whatever. These are sort of really simple inherent metrics of the sequences and you'll just see that they should be consistent amongst themselves, that you shouldn't see like two separate uh, clouds of, of data points. So you, can you see host contamination through that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, you can. I think with the, yeah, well, definitely with the Kamer histogram, you can, uh, you can detect host contamination. You could see if there was a human versus microbe in there. 
And what does that look like? Uh, so one of the programs I've used is called CAT, developed by people in the Erlem Institute, and that that gives you a nice sort of heat map plot. And you can see very, you'll see basically two. It sort of looks like a PCA kind of plot where you've got like a heat map of two clouds or two clusters of of different densities of of data. And that then what that's basically doing is it's using the KMU information and it's weighting it with the with the GC because you you have inherent GC bias anyway in your sequencing, so you do have to account for that. But that's a good way of, if you see two separate blobs, then that means there's probably two separate organisms in your data. Or I suppose if you do an assembly and you have lots of teeny tiny little contigs, that can also be a sign of host contamination. Yep, a lot of, lot, or uh, not necessarily host, it can even be a bunch of adapters that have snuck in, just a bunch of junk that you might need to be worried about. I've heard that called like the kit ohm. Yeah, the kit ohm. You've got <laughs> We'll talk about that later, I think. Yeah, that's that's definitely a big big subject, the kit ohm. Yeah, so Lee, any other or an Andrew, any other maybe de novo approaches or just reference free approaches you'd apply for looking for contamination? I do like the Kamer histogram method that you mentioned earlier. Like it's not a great direct method, but Basically, you get counts of counts of kamers, and you see perhaps different um, peaks of distributions of counts. And it represents at least if you see different peaks, then it represents at least two different things that have been sequenced at different coverages. And it's a very unique way of looking at it. And it's just an indicator, meaning that you can't really identify which kamers belong to which thing, but it's a good um, way to just say, this might be contaminated, I will investigate further. And an advantage of that is that it only takes about a minute to just run that quickly and just look at it by eye. Yeah, in terms of running that in a minute and just looking at it, there are plenty of tools just for looking at read quality. So things like FastQC and uh, FastP as well, which will just give you a printout of most of the kind of plots we're actually talking about. so that you can have a look at if there's anything anomalous. I mean, the FastQC output is really nice because it even has this traffic light system of red, green, and yellow. If your samples are good, not of course you should worry or or they just te- or it fails the um, particular metric. So that's def- that definitely encapsulates a lot of a lot of the methods that we're talking about here. So if if you haven't used it, you should you should be using it. Everyone should be using it. Agreed. One more method that we use um, a lot with um, our state partners and internally is um, a method where you get kind of a canonical gene or set of genes. Like if you're using salmonella, you might look at the serotyping genes, genes like Felici and see if you get like a mixture of a gene that you'd expect to have only one copy of. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bunch of methods that pull out single copy genes. Uh, one of my favorites is Busco but which has a panel of genes that it looks for in, in any type all, all across the tree of life. But uh, there's also CheckM. And you can also do it. I, I mean, if it's, a, if it's a particular species I know about, like Salmonella or E. coli, I can just run MLST with uh, something like Ariba, at least for single isolate data. And that'll tell me if there's any mixed results there because it'll, um, it'll call like you'll get like mixed allele calls and you'll be able to tell 
but yeah, definitely single copy genes and making single copy genes should be single copy. Yeah, so along those lines, I regularly do seven genome LST on all of our samples to make sure we get seven alleles for seven loci. And um, and now I'm just starting to get onto Cryptosporidium and, and they have a canonical gene, GP60, and we're starting to look and see if we can find one allele for that one gene. I suppose people say uh, MLST is dead, but actually it is quite useful as a, a quality control metric. Someone once told me that it is, it is actually quite amazing how long MLSC has persisted as a method, because it's just it's sort of so simple. As I, it's so simple. Why why does this work? But it does. It's it's incredibly effective. I suppose it helps you with things like um, sample swaps and plate rotations, which are quite common in labs. If you can, you know, you have an idea that these samples should be one particular ST or a serotype, and then these other ones aren't. And they can tell you, you know, which way to orientate your place and fix your results later. Yeah, I've actually uh, deliberately had the plates prepared such with a mix of STs or serovars or species such that I can check, you know, check that if there's been a, a mix up or something like that. Because if everything on your plate is typhimerium and you're expecting it to be typhimerium uh, and it's swapped, if it's, if it's just reverse, flipped around in the lab for some reason, you're not going to be able to tell. But you would be able to tell if it's like, oh, this is a completely different species and that's not meant to be in A1, that's meant to be on the other end of it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, we're starting to talk about controls, so maybe we want to elaborate on, on more of the different controls you'd have. Just one more point. One more point. What I find eyeballing your data is a really, really good thing to do, and I'd recommend it to everyone. It's simply just looking at your raw FASTQ files, your raw reads, or mapping them to a reference and opening them up in IGV or Artemis or some kind of uh, program like that. Because just by eye, you can see things that a computer can never tell you. Like, just is the quality bad when you think it's good? Or, you know, is this really just uh, something horrific has gone on, you know? Yeah, horrible coverage dropouts is one that comes to mind. And that you are not necessarily, that, that, that there's very few QC methods that deliberately check for this because you'll get the Fred, you'll get the, the Q score of the reads, which are fine. You'll get the outright sort of cover, the number of read sequence for that, for that sample is fine. But you don't have any idea what the pileup is across a reference genome. And often you can have something happens in the library and you have a drop off where one, something like a hundred, even very large chunks of the, of a, the genome is missing for some reason or another. And yeah, you might, if you don't have some sort of yeah, eyeballing sanity check early on, you might find yourself saying all sorts of things about your data that this, oh, this is this novel strain that doesn't have this and it does this. And it's just nonsense. Or even when you look at your set of coverage, and if you notice the coverage matches the GC, it's like, this is a you know a fundamental bias, and that shouldn't really happen. But oh, does. one one thing that uh, one pro tip that I learned very very early on is if you're sequencing the coverage across a genome should o should never be constant. It should always slope away from the origin of replication. So it always should be really high there and then drop off as it gets to the other side. Oh, well, that's a cool point. I just want to reply to that that um, when I have brought in people into our lab. Um, I have told them to look at IGV specifically, and here this is kind of an art to look at contamination detection to see if you do get drop-offs and things like that. And and you get tips like that that I've never even used 
for example, making sure that your coverage kind of slopes away from the origin of replication. That's a great tip. Or I've never heard that before that um, you should be looking for GC bias. That's great. I mean, there are just so many things you can eyeball and 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 all these different little tippets are just impossible to completely automate. That's it's just great. No, it's that it's it sort of turns into that scene from The Matrix where he's got all the code going down the screen and he can just pick out what's going on just by looking at it. It's it's definitely something that you need a trained eye. You've got the force. <laughs> You've got the force. Yeah. You've got to be contamination sensitive or something. So given that we have all these tools at our disposal, I mean, what are we checking for? What makes the sequencing go bad? So... For example, our first um, bullet point here is that there might be carryover from a previous run. Have you guys have an experience with that? Uh, yeah, I've had. I think both of us have run into this a couple of times. Uh, this seems to be, especially with projects, metagenomic pro projects where you're not necessarily uh, where this this can really sort of show up. But basically, the problem is is that you do a sequ you you get your sequencing data back. And you see the signal for some horrible pathogen or something or other. And it just turns out that it was what was run on the machine, you know, two days before. Or it's what was growing next to whatever you were working on. And you have to be really careful. Uh, some people do their best to try and keep things uh, clean, but you just have to be aware that sometimes things happen and you can get crossover from someone else's experiments. And one of the and one of the best ways that can happen where it's built into your system are things like fixed tip robots. More and more for uh, sequencing purposes, the fluidics is done by little ro automation robots. And often these come with fixed tips. So they're just sort of metal prongs that take the liquid up and drop it off. And obviously that's dunking into your sample. And that can propagate, that can just inoculate across a whole range of, of samples. Even though they would do a wash step in between, it's still not good enough. Yeah, they do do, yeah, they do have wash steps each time, but yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, normally it's just water. It's not with bleach or anything. You'll actually damage the tips if you use heavy chemicals on it. So yeah, it's, it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, I guess the trade-off there is cost, and uh, a lab might say, well, you know, why are we buying tens of thousands of tips when we could just have this one fixed tip robot, you know, and it saves us a fortune. But then, of course, mm -hmm. you get contamination. I think anything where I was, if, if I had the option, anything that was that sensitive, you'd want it done by hand uh, for, for very, in, a, in, in a strictly controlled environment. It's different for things like fixed tips robots are great if you've already post PCR and you're just shunting DNA around and you're not too bothered. Maybe you've got you're sort of quite confident of what you're going to get out get out from the other side. But but yeah, for a lot of primary science, it, it might not be appropriate. We always use um, another source of contamination that we just always talk about, like as an example. But I don't think it's ever actually happened. Is like the scientists sneezing into the the thing. <laughs> And I, I don't think that anyone, like everyone's so scared of doing that. I don't think it's ever actually happened, at least in our labs. Gen generally, that doesn't, generally that's not an issue for micro, microbial people. But that is, so uh, back when I was doing some ancient DNA work, when you talk to the human guys who are trying to get Neanderthal genomes and things like that, that was a massive problem. That are you actually sequencing the 4,000-year-old fossil or have you accidentally just sequenced the lab tech? 
<laughs> and really, for the thirty-year-old fossil, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, for us with the microbe stuff, as any human, we can. We, we I mean, we waste. We we raise sequencing capacity, sequencing that, but obviously we just throw the human reads away. But where where's human on human, that that's a real real uh, real problem. Well, I suppose um, a lot of times you get say staph aureus in your samples, and that's come from probably the skin of the person who prepared the sample or collected the sample. Oh, good point. So what about um, just like systematic things with short reads? Well, overclustering is a huge problem. Um, these days, clustering is performed on the instruments and on aluminum instruments, and that can be problematic sometimes. If it overclusters, then the quality can be pretty poor, and it may be reported as being very good quality. But you know what can you do? And by overclustering, I mean two pieces of DNA have uh, stuck to the plate, and then when they've been amplified up or with cluster generation, then the signal gets uh, impaired. And in your Illumina sequencing instruments these days, the camera is, it's not as specialized for cost reasons. So, you know, it, it's probably just a little bit better than your iPhone camera. And to compensate for that, they've reduced the number of clusters overall. So it is less of a problem, but it still does happen. And it can catch you out. I never thought to compare it, like the camera to my iPhone camera. So whenever I read these papers, it's like, we have the most awesome camera. You've never seen it before. It's incredible. But I've never actually made that comparison before. Uh, you, yeah, you have to remember, Lee, all of the work we do is basically we're just taking pictures. <laughs> That's awesome. What about like with um, reagents? Like maybe you might run out of C's or what, another nucleotide? Yeah, I've seen that happen a few times where maybe at the end of uh, one of the cycles, suddenly you only have, say, A's and T's and G's, but no C's, which is really random, you know? And that shouldn't happen. But it does, unfortunately, sometimes. You run out of reagents as, as the machine goes on. There's something catastrophic has happened, and you have to look out for that pattern as well. And it won't be immediately obvious either. Is it necessarily using expired <laughs> cartridges or...? Is it I, just bad batches or something like that? I think we're at the bleeding edge of science, and uh, sometimes things don't work. Have you seen um, issues with, for example, um, fragment size distribution? Oh, that's a big one. Um, so fragment size distribution doesn't really matter. That's the physical length of your DNA. It doesn't matter if you're doing mapping, per se. It's when you're doing a de novo assembly, it's nice to have a nice tight peak, because then it makes it easier to to link where the paired end reads are, and then you can do better de novo assembly. But unfortunately, quite often, for whatever reason, people have quite broad uh, fragment size distributions, or they haven't done any fragment size selection or size selection, and that can just cause unnecessary problems. Yeah, I remember uh, a long, maybe, maybe Lee will remember, some of the first data that I worked with. Remember mate paired libraries? Oh yes. Back when you had uh, you had like a set of the insert size was like three to four, three to five KB, right? And that was fantastic because you could get over your repeats, and that was really useful with the, with the short read next gen tech technology. But you always had a shadow library, which was a set that sort of failed, and those were just a hundred, two hundred base pairs. So when you plotted your frequencies, you just had these two peaks, and you had to sort of deal with that because a, a standard assembler would just freak out with the with this variation in fragment size 
I used to look at that with um, 454. I never got into it with Illumina, but like it would always be something strange. I never understood what was happening. I think I was still a little bit green, but like if you multiplex like four of them on the 454, then two of them would have really great results. And then the other two would just be like, those samples would be dead. Yeah, but that sort of problem still kind of occurs because yeah, you, you, I think even if you take any um, any any uh, protocol where you're doing your size selection or your shearing or, or fragmentation step, you will always get this. You you will always get some that just sort of very short or very very long or somewhere in the middle. You'd hope that they're normally distributed, but not always. Uh, that's what the SM, yeah, as, as Andrew says, that's what the assembler is expecting. Uh, but that's not always the case. Uh, it definitely has, it's definitely a lot better on the Illumina platform in the last few years than it was a few years ago. Some some of the library preps were, I used to see them like two to f- 200, 200 to 500 kind of fragment size, which was too much for things like Velvet to handle. Well, I don't think these days we should be using a velvet. <laughs> it's a long time since it was... Uh, no, no, I'm talking uh, a long time ago, but yeah, yeah. yeah, it's still an issue, this sort of thing. So yeah, you do want to... Uh, there are simple tools for this as well, obviously, like when you do your read mapping, you can, again, going back to just the simple eyeballing, you can see the insert size and you can get an idea of what whether it's something that you expect. Uh, and then there are tools like uh, Picard, which will just spit out the plot for you uh, really quickly, and you can have a look at that distribution. And SAMTIL stats as well. Sam, yeah, SAMTIL stats as well. Uh, that does mean you have to have a reference, but that'll give you a rough idea of what's going on. One thing that really kills uh, Denovo assembly is where you have ends in the very middle of a read, because then the camers are just totally screwed up. Yeah, I've never, I've never figured out why that happens. It's got something to do. I think the the when it's taking the pictures, the sequence is taking the pictures. It sort of spazzes out and doesn't. It's not able to call that one base. I've seen it happen a few times where people have paused machine or there's been a, bit, a little bit of a power blip or something like that, and you just get a load of ends and it recovers immediately. But yeah, don't mess with the machine. Yeah, I did the systematic review um, one time with another person in my lab where we just took about like 500 random genomes, I could see there was a tendency to have an uptick of ends at like base pair number 37 and then 100 and something and then something else. And I I don't know what that causes that. Yeah, that's very old Illumina data because they used to put it in a hair, they used to put it in a, in a, in a loop, it used to double back on itself. So that was like, the, that was the, uh, the apex of the corner as it, as it sort of bent around a loop. So that would cause a problem. So you'd always see this drop off in, in quality. But that was, oh, wow. that was a long time ago, I think, that if you're, if you're systematic review, if you're seeing that, that I don't see that problem anymore. Great, okay. That you just answered like a years old question for me. <laughs> Yeah, we had the same issue back when I was doing my PhD, and it was just like, what on earth is going on? And it's just the way that the sequencing is done. Uh, introduce these regions, uh, length points of the read that would just be lower quality because of that. There's just a physical limitation of what they were doing. So one thing I found is uh, you can get some problems with barcodes if you do multiplexing, and particularly with bacteria. 
we're trying to shove so many uh, different bacteria onto one lane, one run, that can cause a lot of issues. So you've got to be very careful to just have a look at your actual set of barcodes, what the hamming distance is between them, that is how many errors can you sustain without falsely calling another barcode. And occasionally you do actually get some leakage, uh, you know, there's some classic stories where just the barcodes you buy in have been slightly contaminated and then, you know, if your barcode li- or your indexes are contaminated on the way in, then there's not, you know, no hope for you then down the line, really. All you can do is identify it and try and deal with it. So this is the basic, this is the basis of when people talk about bleed through on, on runs. That's commonly the way it's, it's sort of called, but it's really a... It's really a hash collision in your barcode. And I suppose part of the problem is because the indexes are so short, often they're, what, six, seven, you know, nine, yeah. nine base pairs. Oh, I think for the, ni- and, and when they say it's a nine base pair thing for the index, they don't actually use the first base either. They use that to spin up the, to do the quality call for the, for the next base. So it's oh. actually eight. It's like N minus one. Uh, and... Yeah, if you had longer, if you had longer indexes, you wouldn't have this problem. I mean, I remember, like, obviously for things like primers, we we insist on twenty base pairs, right, uh, to be specific enough. And then with the sequencing, with demultiplexing, with like you know eight eight by uh, eight bases. But I think a lot of these issues are resolved with the dual dual barcoding or dual indexes now, because if you had just the one, you'll wor- you'd need. Uh, maybe one or two errors and then you'll have a collision but if you have two barcodes you've got a tolerance of up to four which is less likely but then you're wasting sequence valuable sequencing data you know yeah but you can actually but you can reliably demultiplex it i mean i don't know it's it is a trade-off one way or another uh, of, of how you deal with that having more data like having longer reads is really helpful so it's a really tough trade-off to um to justify sometimes yeah it is uh and i think the standard um the multiplexer on illumina will tolerate one one error sort of thing to to do the assignment so it'll say and it can actually do it's actually quite good at detecting if there is this sort of problem shows up so if people are worried about this kind of issue uh, do the demultiplexing yourself run bcl to fastq and you can get a full report of all of this sort of problems and it'll flag it up for you if something goes wrong with your barcodes but of course then not everything can be uh, sequenced on an alumina sequencer just chemistry doesn't support where say you have a, a phage or something like that that's very heavily methylated or a lot of epigenetic modifications yeah it, it doesn't really work so there is some stuff out there that we're missing but luckily other technologies can help us to recover that uh, data yeah, that's probably one of the best tips for contamination is have multiple channels of where you're generating your data from. Just in case something does go wrong, you can recover from somewhere else and you can deal with any biases uh, as you go along. Yeah, so following on from that, Andrew, I mean, maybe you can take us through some of the issues you'd expect to see with long reads and well, other platforms. Well, the most fundamental thing is that you can't make long reads if you only have very short DNA fragments. And that's something that people forget all the time. They think, oh, yeah, you know, I've made this long read library, but, you know, it's full of 50 base uh, length fragments. Well, you know, you can't actually get long reads out of that. So you have to have good quality stuff going in if you want good quality stuff coming out. 
So the instruments for long read sequencing aren't magic. There is quite an over-reliance in, in long read sequencing on informatics methods to fix the inherent errors because obviously, say with Nanopore, it's about 92% accurate. And so, you know, you have to do a lot of informatics magic to fix that. But of course, you know, computers can only get you so far and some of those will make mistakes and you just have to deal with that, you know? Uh, what about contamination uh, with chemistry bias? Well, we noticed recently with the, the PAC Bio, we ran some data through a SQL 2, but unfortunately we used like their first version of chemistry, which probably we shouldn't have done. And then we noticed 90% of our reads, you know, were truncated. And that was literally just the chemistry collapsed. And that was it. We lost, you know, huge volumes of data. And basically we're just told, oh, well, we need version two of our chemistry. So repeat your experiment, please. Which isn't much help. But it took us a fair bit of time to actually go through all of that data and to figure out exactly where the problems were, you know, and, and working out what's gone wrong is it's an art form in itself you know you have to use a bit of common sense and some other matrix type skills to work out where the problem probably is because we could have just said oh well that's a problem on our end we messed up in the wet lab but no this was systematic bias and another thing with uh certainly with pack bio is where you overload and maybe you have two fragments of dna in one well and so you get this kind of mixed signal. And of course, then the opposite extreme is underloading, where you're just wasting your sequencing capacity and you haven't put enough stuff in the smart cell. So that's something to look out for. And then for the Promethean, I know um, that has a refueling step. And something you have to get right is when to refuel, right? So if you put a run on, you have to make sure someone is there to actually top it up and so you have to be careful with timings to make sure someone is on site so just a little pro tip uh, otherwise there. it'll just run out of gas well but yeah basically <laughs> you can just see the decline going down and down and down you refuel it then it continues and all is good how often do you have to refuel i actually didn't know oh god i don't know it's uh after nearly a day so okay not too often yeah yeah so when you're feeding your cells you just feed your promethean yeah, why not? <laughs> Eat your fish. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's talk more, switch back and talk more generally about some of the controls we would build into our experiments to make sure that we can avoid a lot of the different problems we've been talking about. What do you guys do for controls? You always want to have positive and negative controls all throughout your, your protocol. And this is as simple as sequencing a blank or doing an extraction on your media to make sure there's on blank sterile media to make sure there's nothing there or just growing it making sure that it's clean uh thing you also want to have positive controls one trick is to have your favorite bug in a particular well on the plate when it's when it's sent off for sequencing and you know that that's there and that should come back as what you expected you know you map the reads back onto your known genome for it and that should that should be brain dead exactly the way that you you expect it to be and particularly if you use an external provider you should always put on a control randomly on the plate and don't tell them oh never tell them where the uh, where that secret control is yeah and if you're 
sequencing, say, water and things like that, would you recommend spiking in or just sequencing? I wouldn't know. With the, if it's just water, I might just do an extraction and see how much DNA is floating about. Though they shouldn't really be, they shouldn't be much. Um, with, it might be worth spiking in something for, spiking in something, as well. So you're trying to, you're kind of measuring two different. You're trying to look at different problems. So I suppose it depends on the type of experiment you're doing. Uh, so if you're working at a low biomass sample, you'd probably have to do something different to if you're just working with a very high biomass sample, like from poo or something. Yep, and definitely differences between culture and doing it from a complex sample and and so on. And the different levels of rigor. I mean, for low biomass, you have to be very, very careful that something else hasn't snuck in, that you haven't got some something from the kit that you've used. I mean, in some in some cases with low biomass samples, the noise, the contamination can outstrip anything you're seeing in your actual sample. So I've heard cases where people have put a blank in, and the blank had more taxa, was more had more DNA, had more taxa that came back in the blank than they did in their actual sample, where they were look but for what they were look, looking for. And then you end up with a placenta microbiome. Yeah, you end up with a placenta microbiome, which microbes are everywhere. I suppose that uh, the batch effect is a big thing as well. Yeah, with, especially with the with the low biomass or uh, when you're trying to be really sensitive, it, batch effect can be a massive problem. It's just one small thing that just permeates your entire data set and then that can lead you down the garden path thinking that this is something real. And it and these are things like if you have two if you're comparing two different hosts or two different time points, maybe don't run one host on one run and one host on the other run. You might want to kind of think of some sort of stratification process where you mix them around just to avoid these kind of batch effect issues. And even you might just have different uh, technicians running different batches as well with different batches of reagents and all of this kind of jazz. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this issue, this sort of issue with batch effect permeates through everything. I mean, you've got the same thing with mouse models. If you keep one condition in one cage and one condition in another cage, is what you're seeing just from based off the batch that you're using. And also, you shouldn't run controls separately to your actual cases. You should run them together. You know, not just run controls on a Monday or two months or three months after you've done your main experiment because you need controls and you forgot about them. No, they should definitely be integrated from the get-go. Like they should be treated like as a first-class citizen as part of your study and not some definitely not something tacked on at the end i mean what is what's really the point especially with things like biology where it seems where results can sort of change from day to day or from reagent to reagent i think that these were really great stories we went over basically uh how to do quality control with contamination talking about things like kraken or um, what actually makes your your um, sequences get contaminated? And we had lots of really good reasons there. Then you guys had a lot of good examples of how to run controls. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. 
The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.